Hello, 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 hello. All right, everyone, welcome. Go ahead and take your seats. Hug each other, shake their hands. Look them in the eye. If you are in the foyer, go ahead and come on inside. We're going to get started this morning. My name is Amy. I am part of the staff here at Sierra Bible Church, and I want to welcome you. If you are new or if you are visiting, uh, whether it's your first time or your, I'm going to say, fourth time, you can grab a gift on your way out. We have a gift for you at our info booth. Um, we also have information about our church in the seat pocket in front of you. And if you are not familiar or don't know, we do have an app. And if you haven't downloaded it, it's an awesome thing to download because it has all the information about what's going on this week, what's going on next week. Uh, it actually has the entire year calendar on it. It has all our previous uh, sermons, um, uh, devos for the families. It has all sorts of things on that app. And so anything I, that you don't catch up here, it's going to be on there. Uh, I do want to mention a couple things this morning before we get going in the Book of Mark. Uh, that is one of them I mentioned last week. It is called A Night to Shine. And this is a program put on by Tim Tebow. It is a prom night for the special needs community for 14 and up. And so when I say prom night, it is that. It's what you envision. I don't know what your prom night was like. I don't want to know. But I will tell you, it is dancing and a DJ and it's food and it's like rolling out the red carpet. They try to get the kids here in limos if they can. Um, pictures, king, uh, crowns. I think people get crowned during the prom. And so all of that is happening here at this church. We send in an application to apply to be the host of this event and we were selected. And so it's going to be here on February 10th. It's a Friday night. And with that, there'll be more information coming out to you if you want to volunteer for that event, if you want to be there that night, welcome the students or the youth, um, be a part of the food, take pictures, you know, we'll get all that information out to you uh, when we receive it. But I do want you to save the date uh, for February 10th. And keep it in mind, if it's something you think you want to volunteer for, or if you know someone in the community that is in that category, again, 14 and up, um, that might want to attend. Um, and so we're going to be sending invites out through the Tahoe Basin and in Reno and pretty much anywhere that um, where people could come and bring their, their youth to this event. So that's happening February 10th. And if you were a part of John Drollinger's Foundations of the Faith class last year, um, you all took a little bit of a break and that is starting up again on January 22nd. It is going to be on Sunday during second service, just like before, and it's six weeks. So if you are a part of that, I want to make sure you know to come back and be a part of that. If you were not able to attend the first session, that's okay, and you're interested in coming to the second session, you're still welcome to be there. So this is in a couple weeks' time, and this is just like the tip of the iceberg of everything going on at the church and the community groups and Bible studies. And so again, if you have questions, please ask, and we would love to get you plugged into something this year. All right, let's welcome up Pastor Jesse. One of the biggest blessings to having Amy do announcements is she announces me and you all just clap because it's like the nice thing to do. So makes me feel good. It's a good start. Uh, as Amy mentioned, my name is Jesse, and I'm part of the pastoral team. Welcome. Good to have you. Uh, we're continuing our series in Mark, uh, and we're going to be in chapter 14. So go ahead and turn to chapter 14. We'll start in verse <clears throat> 26, I believe. We'll get there in a moment. Uh, but yeah, just keep your hand up. And one of the things I mentioned on Christmas Day a couple weeks ago, uh, and I, I just want to mention it here again in case you haven't heard or uh, haven't heard me communicate what I'm about to say, I just want to say thank you. If you've supported this church in service or in giving, uh, we're very, very just, to be honest with you, uh, as, the, as the guy who kind of sits in the lead position, I'm just blown away at what God has done through you uh, and, and through this church. We've had the best year that we've ever had, and, and we've said that multiple years in a row now. And, uh, and that's just, it, it's, have you ever heard this statement before? The reward for faithful work is more work. That's the reward. And so as God has been faithful to us and you've been faithful, it's going to require us to continue to pray how we would expand the borders of the gospel and our reach 
Uh, as an example of that, I won't be here next week. I'm, I'm supposed to drive to Sonoma County with my wife on Thursday, and I am speaking from the main stage for a conference for several churches in Sonoma County. Allie and I will be doing a breakout session together on marriage, and so please be praying for us. Uh, I, I think, um, I'm sure my wife would say the same thing. We love each other, but we by no means feel like our marriage is perfect. We just feel like our marriage is founded on the gospel and that we're gracious with each other's weaknesses to the best of our ability, which means we don't always do a great job. Anybody amen to that if you're married? Uh, and so our marriage is no different than, than any of yours, really, other than the fact that we really know we need Jesus. And so that's ultimately all we're going to do is expand that gospel message to another group of people. <laughs> Marriages need the grace of God. Amen? And so does our parenting and everything else. And, uh, and so we are going to continue to do what we do, which is to teach God's word and, and minister to the people in the Tahoe Basin area, whether snow or shine, we're not going to close our doors ever again. And uh, we're just thankful for you. And God has been really good. I, again, I, I, I can't express my gratitude uh, any deeper than I, than I am now. I'm lost for words, to be honest with you. It just blows me away to see uh, what God's doing. And and it's needed. There's a lot of delayed maintenance on the on these two buildings, and uh, the, that generosity has allowed us to continue to keep the building in, in shape. Because God's people, they don't they don't need a house, but they do need a place to gather. God's people are called to gather, and in Tahoe, that requires a roof, a working roof. Uh, and so, thank you for that. I want to start out by asking a question. When you're sad or you're lonely, what do you do with it? What do you do when you're depressed? What do you do when you feel like the world's falling all around you? Some of us, we've either lived a life of tragedy or we know someone that's lived a life of tragedy. Some of us uh, know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to depression and isolation. I, I, I didn't even bother. It, typically in a message on something like this, I would do a little bit of research on the state of mental health in the United States. I didn't even bother because it's not even something that it needs to be argued anymore at this point. I think all of us are well aware that mental illness is, is an issue. Uh, addiction is higher than it's ever been, and statistics just say we're falling apart all over the place. Uh, and yet we know that there is a solution to that. We know that the gospel is a solution to that. We know Jesus is a solution to that. And this morning we get a peek and to Jesus handling a great deal of sadness, a great deal of grief. This is one of those messages for me. Uh, it, it ends up kind of becoming more for me than you, if you will, because there's moments when I, when I have the opportunity to study in my office and get into Scripture, there's moments where God just speaks to me. And I know it's for me, and it's not necessarily going to be for anybody else. And I, I find myself a little bit in that situation this morning as someone who— has lived through a lot of tragedy, the death of uh, a close loved one, alcoholism and drug addiction and violence and prison. All of those things have marked my life deeply. And they've had impacts because of them. Jesus has spoken in those things and, and he's carried me through those things. But that doesn't mean the residual consequences of such sin haven't taken their toll in my life to one degree or another. And so as I studied this passage, I couldn't help but see the love of Jesus in the midst of pain and suffering and feeling alone and isolated. And I'm hoping this morning that you will be encouraged by Jesus's example in the garden of pain. And it's interesting to know that in this passage, this is Jesus who has just sat through the last supper. He has taken the, the, his Jewish audience, his disciples, and he has explained to them that over the last several hundred years, the participation in the Last Supper meal is really all about him and about our exodus out of sin and pain. As he makes sense of that Last Supper, we're going to see here that Jesus arises from that table. He crosses the Kidron Valley, and he goes back to the Mount of Olives, a significant place for us. And at the Mount of Olives sits a private garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus crosses that place, historians tell us that in the Kidron Valley was a brook. And that brook had somehow access to 
the Temple Mount, and during this season, much like where we're at now, uh, the winter season, that brook would have been rushing with water. But it has been said of the thousands and thousands of lambs that were sacrificed at the temple, there was an outlet that came through that particular uh, brook, and that oftentimes there would be blood in that season running through those waters. It's interesting to note that because Jesus, at this moment as he crosses, no doubt has in his mind that all of these lambs and all of these animals of perfection that have been sacrificed have only been sufficient to hold back the wrath of God. It is said that those sacrifices of old were not to necessarily appease for sin as much as it was to hold back the wrath of God on sin. And those lambs were an imperfect sacrifice for the sin of humanity. And as he crosses that river, he knows that soon his blood will run. But it will be the only blood that is necessary to finally atone for the sins of mankind. Uh, this morning's message is probably going to be a little heavier than normal, and, and it is intended to be so. This is sacred ground that we're in. And the emotional exacerbation that Jesus feels cannot be lost on us. And the implications of that emotion, the implications of his loneliness and what that means for his people. And so if you would, I would invite you this morning to somberly stand with me as we read from this holy passage and give it honor. Mark chapter 14, verse 26. <clears throat> When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they will fall away, even though they will fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. They all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And Going a little further, he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time. He said to them, are you still sleeping? Taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. And the church said, Amen. Please be seated. There's an interesting connection, as there typically is throughout Scripture, between the Old and the New Testament. We find ourselves with Jesus, the new Adam, the perfect Adam, entering into a garden to fulfill and to win the day. It's a contrast between Jesus in the garden and Adam in the garden. Adam also was in a garden where all was perfected and all was nice. And yet Adam could not stand or withstand the temptation of that apple. Here we see Jesus showing us that he is this new man. He is the greater Adam. He is perfect and we're all other prophets and where all other priests and all other sacrifices have failed, Jesus surely will be successful. First, he previews. There's a prediction that Jesus makes, a prophecy. 
And that prophecy is that the king, the suffering king, that is the over, our overall arching theme of Mark is that Jesus is our suffering servant. He serves and he suffers. That's the emphasis of the gospel. And here in this particular place, he says that not only will he suffer, but he's going to suffer alone. And he says he will be abandoned by all. He alone will drink this cup of which he's praying will be removed from him. He alone will be the one that tastes this bitter, bitter thing called sin, shame, and guilt. And yet Jesus submits completely to the process. He predicts the reality that there are Pharisees that desire to, to kill him and destroy him. Uh, he says the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. That comes from Zechariah 13.7. That, that has been said before in societies and cultures. If you can get the leader, you'll get all of the followers. This is the thinking for sure of the great enemy that is Satan. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will fail. There will be no more followers. There'll be no more worshipers. Jesus' vision of a heaven and an earth and sinners and saints reconciled will be done away with. That is the goal of Satan, to crush the shepherd in likeness that the sheep would be crushed as well. The text kind of hides this to a certain degree, but remember, nothing is accidental. Everything is on purpose. This garden is called the Garden of Gethsemane, which literally means an olive press or an olive crusher. There's a process within this particular private garden. Olive oil was actually used for just about everything and you needed to get that oil out of the olives and to do so they would put it in a very heavy press they would put the olives inside of a large cylindrical stone and they would use another cylindrical stone that would roll around and crush the olives as it was manually pushed the image is of the olive which is valuable and and worth something being crushed into its oil to give life to the people what is the imagery here for Jesus in this garden? Jesus will be crushed, and the oil, that is the Holy Spirit, will be shared amongst his people. Without that crushing, there is no sharing of the gift of the Spirit that you and I have. Jesus uses these words, you will all fall away. The language there is the same place we get our words to scandalize. It literally means that he will be abandoned. Much like a ship going to the seabed, all of those who are following with Jesus are going to abandon him. We like to pick on Peter because we know he's going to do it three times. But yet the text tells us that Jesus' prediction is that all will fall away. It won't just be Peter. It'll be every single one of them that will abandon the Lord. There is a great truth and reality that we can't lose within this passage. Romans 3.23 paints it very well. Most of you are familiar with the passage. That, the righteousness of God, is accessed through faith in Jesus. That's the first reality. The first reality is that we are saved by faith and faith alone. The object of our faith is Jesus. Nothing else saves us. Church says, Amen. Your good works don't save you. Your good actions don't save you. Your good intentions don't save you. Your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds don't save you. Prayer doesn't save you. Giving doesn't save you. Faith in Christ saves you. That's what Romans says. It's access through faith in Jesus. It continues. There is no distinction. You should ask a question. A distinction between what? Anybody. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us are like these disciples. All of us at some point in our faith, maybe even today, maybe before you got here, maybe as you were getting into the car, right? I know what it's like at times to get a whole family into a vehicle somewhere else, right? Nobody prepares you for that as a new parent, do they? Hey, you know how it used to take you 10 minutes to get somewhere? Now it's going to take you two days, <laughs> right? And you get stressed and all of that anxiousness and all of that frustration, anger, whatever it may be, all of us have been guilty of sin. And then there's this language in Romans that gives us a greater picture of what is occurring in this garden and what will occur on the cross. We're justified, it says, by his grace as a gift through the redemption, redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You've heard me rant on this particular word before because it is an important word that should not be lost. It is a word that we should not lose its meaning. It is a word that we should not pick up and throw away. It is a word that we should not ignore. Propitiation. Everyone say it with me. Come on. Propitiation. So I said it slow just in case. Uh, yeah. What does that word mean? A wrath-bearing sacrifice. There are, just so you know, I know some of you aren't in the circles that I'm in and you don't read all of the books that I read and you're not in touch with pastors all over the country and what have you, but there has literally been an attack to remove this word out of the biblical text. We just don't need it because after all, no one wants to talk about God being wrathful. All Americans want to hear is God is loving. No one wants to hear the negativity. However, all of us, when we hear of the rapist or the murderer or the one who has committed some gross crime, all of us cry out for justice, that justice would be served, that a punishment would be given to remove the one who has completely disobeyed God out of the picture is the most loving thing God could do. And this is what the Old Testament sacrifices were all about. We are deserving of the same wrath of Noah and the rest, the flooding of the earth. And these sacrifices have held back the wrath of God as a preview to the thing that will completely hold back the wrath of God. To the thing that will give the, the wrath of God will be satisfied for all of that punishment that we rightly deserve, that it will fall upon Jesus. Jesus will taste that propitiation. He will be the wrath-bearing sacrifice. And yet, most of us are just like Peter. What do we say? Not I. I would never do such a thing. Right? You can't help but contrast the humility of Jesus as he enters in to the garden of Gethsemane with the pride of all of the disciples, including Peter. Again, we hammer on Peter because he's the one who says, I will not, they will. Do you notice it in the, the text? There's an I and a they. That's the first thing pride typically does. There is a separation of people. I'm not like you. Remember, Scripture says there should be no distinction between anyone. We're all in need of salvation. And yet Peter says, no, 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 I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. And, and then what is the response of the rest? Remember, Peter gets the hammer most of the time, but what does everybody else say? Me neither. Right? I'm sure he didn't say it like that. I'm sure they, they, they didn't realize what they were actually saying because what is Peter actually saying to Jesus? Jesus, you're a liar. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know my heart. You think I'm capable of such things, Lord? Not I. I'll follow you. And he doubles down. He says, I will go all the way to the grave for you. That's how dedicated I am to you. That's how loyal I am to you. That's how much I love you. Dare we ever boast in our love for God? I say no. But we should boast of God's love for us. We know that our love is imperfect. We have to know that. We have to know that it is easy for us, like Peter, to turn to thyself, rather to thine and his will. But this is no, this isn't anything new. But we see this in Isaiah chapter 14. If you have easy access to it and you want to turn there, go to that particular passage. In this passage, we have a, uh, the, really the, the famous declarations of Satan himself. This is Satan declaring to the world who exactly he is. Isaiah 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, listen carefully to the emphasis, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Do you hear it? It's an emphasis of I. I'll do it. I'll handle it. I'll make it happen. I have self-respect. 
I have self-worth. It's all about the individual. There's no humility. There's no calling out for help. There's no asking for God's assistance. There's no humbling yourself before other leaders and saying, I am in need of your help. I can do this on my own. One of the worst sins of American society, and dare I say, especially even in Tahoe, is the sin of individualism. It's difficult for us to ask for help. Right? There is, this is just an honest assessment, a, a rogue spirit that exists within our culture in this area, is there not? I will do it my way. I will trailblaze my own path. I will lead my own ministry. I will do it my way. Pride isolates us. It keeps us alone, and it brings much depression. Jesus attempts to soften that pride. You will deny me, and yet it's still not enough to get through. That's how dark and heavy pride is. Yet we know that Jesus has a promise. He knows how prideful we are. He knows how arrogant we are. But do you notice as he mentions to them, you will deny me, but he says in addition in here, he says, but I'm going to go before you. I'm going to bring you back. You're going to fall, but my grace is bigger than your fall. My grace is bigger than your stupidity. I'm going to come back for you. Do you remember in in a very similar manner, remember the conversation between Peter and Jesus? Do you remember that one? Peter, imagine if this was Jesus talking to you. Satan's asked about you. You know Peter's thought. It's because I'm important, isn't it? I'm a big deal. And he says Satan's desire is to sift you like wheat. To crush you. Similar language of the olive press. Satan's desire is to ruin you, Peter. But then Jesus gives the same kind of emphasis he gives in this passage. But I am praying for you. That you will not fail. And when you fall, and when you get back up, be an example to your brothers and sisters. Jesus already predicts it. I mean, he's not caught by surprise by your stupidity or your sin or your arrogance. He knows that you've done it. And yet he's still graced to say, I will receive you unto my own. Just once you recognize it and you finally have been humbled and you finally have been filled with the Spirit, do something about it, would you, Peter? Peter is filled with that spirit because of the crushing of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, he finally stands up and he proclaims the gospel with such clarity and such power that he is sought to be destroyed. But thousands of people come to Jesus because of that proclamation. Jesus is in the same business of saving individuals because of this reality. And yet Jesus goes into the garden. He separates himself from the nine. And he takes three of his closest companions with him. Peter, James, and John have been his closest intimate circle throughout the Gospels. These are the men that Jesus has poured the most time into. They have been on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen much. It's been a late night. They've been eating, remember? They've just had the Last Supper. There have been several glasses of wine at that table. And as they cross the Kidron Valley late at night and Jesus finds himself to go alone in the garden to pray to his father for what he is about to endure on the cross. He's going to go speak to his dad for what he's about to do. So he takes his most trusted dudes, right? And he says, okay, guys, just sit out here and stay awake. Watch. Why? Because he's already predicted the betrayer is going to come. He's going to be arrested. He's going to go through a farce of trials. And he's going to be crucified. But not yet. Not yet. So stand guard and watch so I have time to pray. And he goes and he prays. Three times he comes back and what are the disciples doing? Well, they're taking a nap. Again, typical of humanity. It is lost on them of the importance of what is happening within this garden. The holiness of it, the weight of it, the importance of it. Stay and watch, guys. The arrest is looming. I need time to pray. And then there is an emphasis of emotion for us to see what Jesus is experiencing within this garden. He says, I'm distressed. In verse 33, I looked up that word to find out kind of what it meant to see what the emphasis was. 
That word distressed along with troubled is to emphasize Jesus's great alarm, alarmment, or is that a word, alarmment? He's alarmed. He's amazed. What is he alarmed and amazed by? The intensity of pain that he's feeling. To the point of death. He was astonished by what he was feeling. Other gospels put it this way. He was so distressed that the capillaries below the surface of his head started to break. And as Jesus began to pray and as he began to sweat and agonize, literally blood was pouring from his face. It probably would not have been uh, or is not a too far of a stretch to say that when Jesus went into the garden, fell down and prayed, that when he arose to go speak to his disciples, he probably very clearly had tears and blood running down his face. Can't you guys stay awake? You see it in the text that says the disciples don't know what to say. Not just because they're asleep, but they're probably astonished by what is happening to Jesus' face. The pain and the agony that he is experiencing is so far away from anything that they're experiencing. Jesus literally, for him, the Garden of Gethsemane is hell, and for the disciples, it's nap time. And so when Jesus comes to awaken them, the contrast is too large for them to understand. We're taking a nap. Everything seems okay. What's wrong with him? He seems to be distressed. He is. And verse 35 tells us that he fell in part, that is to show us in the text of Jesus' submission to the Father, to show us his humility in contrast to the pride, that he is surrendering to the will of the Father, but ultimately he's falling because the weight of what he is carrying is too heavy for him. He begins to cry out. This is that moment where I said, this may just be for me. But as a father, I can't help but see myself here to some degree. Jesus knows what he's about to do. And so he prays, and he says something about the Father that all of us should understand about the Father. He sees God's omnipotence. Do you see it? I know everything. I know anything is possible for you. But there's something else hidden in here that we may not realize. The word Abba isn't him speaking to his father as if God is this high and lofty thing that cannot be touched, that he is deserving of such honor that we must call him sir. No, the language of Abba is daddy. I have one child in my family now that still calls me daddy on a consistent basis. It's my six-year-old. And every now and then when we give our kids tablet time, and I love my little David, man. He is just a ball of too much intelligence and too much energy, and, right? Because he's got a 12-year-old brother. And you know what 12-year-old brothers teach 6-year-old brothers? Things that 6-year-old brothers shouldn't know. <laughs> he's <laughs> confessing his sin. You've been forgiven, son. <clears throat> and... And here, here uh, often he'll, he'll be playing his little video game and he'll, he'll, as I walk by, he'll see me out of the corner of his eye and he'll say, I love you, Daddy. And the preciousness of his little voice with those words. Dad, I come before you, you're my father. And I know as my father that you can do anything. And so, if you could do anything, could you, could you change the plan? Could we do it another way? But then he says, along with those words, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is about to taste. Here's the reality. Your sin is heavy. Your anguish is heavy. Your sadness is heavy. Your guilt and shame beyond measure. Those things, to taste those things, there's no way of describing what Jesus will taste on the cross. Here he gets a preview. He gets a foretaste. And the foretaste of that pain buckles him. And he falls to the ground. It's not the physical pain. 
that is distressing him. It's the separation from him and his daddy. I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want to be forsaken by you. And as he prays this intimate prayer of relationship, he turns to the Father, and before him, as he prays, all Jesus can see is what is in that cup. What is that cup? It is the wrath of God. Jesus will be the propitiation. Before Jesus is wrath. Before him is abyss. Before him is chasm and nothingness. And he is going to drink every last drop. As scripture tells us, for our sake, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we would become the righteousness of God. He recognizes God's omnipotence. He recognizes in his depression, if we could call it that, in his sadness, in his loneliness, he knows the only solution he has is to be supported by his father. In this mission, as it later will say in Hebrews, that as he leaves this particular place, he marches back out and he gets arrested and he's dragged to the cross. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Which means his sadness and his loneliness turned into great joy, knowing what his sacrifice would accomplish. And Jesus, other than God being in that garden with him, is completely abandoned as Peter, James, and John, his big three, are laid out in the garden taking a nap, not once, not twice, but three times, the same amount of times as Peter will deny Jesus. Now, as we kind of segue just for a moment, I just got to make note of this. I've mentioned it before, and I think it's a good marker of depression. In other places in this particular gospel, we've talked about these moments where Jesus went away to take a nap as he was in the boat and he took a nap. And we've jokingly stated that sometimes the healthiest thing you can do is take a nap. And the world said, amen. At the same time, we also have to say that, especially with depression and and those kind of feelings of heaviness, sleep is not the solution. You can't just sleep certain things off. Because Jesus gives a commandment. He, he tells the disciples before going. What was the commandment he gave them? Be watchful. That's the opposite of sleep. Did you know that? Have you ever been to, um, have you ever been to one of those water parks where they watch the pool like in a really weird way? You do know what I'm talking about? I'll, I'll preview it for you. Let's say you're the pool. The whole shift. Have you been to those pools? Have you? And they just walk back and forth. That's watchful, right? Because they don't want to miss the drowning child. They don't want to miss somebody in panic. And this is exactly what Romans 13, 11 commands us as believers in Christ who've been saved by Jesus' actions. You know that this is the time. The hour has come for you to awake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And then he tells us what a being awake looks like. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, right? The pool guy, what is our action? So then, let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. There's a positive and a negative. That is to put on Jesus and throw off everything that is not of Jesus. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness or sexual immorality or sensuality or quarreling or jealousy. Let me read that again in my translation. This is what Romans 12 through 13 says in Jesse's translation. Very simply put, just don't watch the Kardashians. That's the entire passage. If you need reason to turn off such trash, such gossip, such sexual immorality, don't sell it. You know, if you stop watching it, they'll stop putting it on TV. I understand. Well, you know, the grace of God, yeah, but it's trash. And put on the armor of light. Right? Put on light. Put on humility. Be humble before the Lord. 
One of the greatest things that you can't help but see in all of scriptures, the thing that keeps us away from God, is ultimately pride. I can do it. I don't need it. I'm fine. I can do it my way. I don't need God's way. I don't need humility. Pride is the thing that takes us away from God. It keeps us far from him. Jesus then goes on and he shares with the disciples as he comes back and he tells them, you've got to stay awake because the spirit is willing but your flesh is weak. Now that we are Christians, if you have come to the Lord in salvation, you have two natures that exist within you and you should be well aware of them. Inside of you is the light of God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you have that light and that light is the thing that says, go to church, serve people, make sure your time and your treasure and your talent are given to the glory of God before anything else. That's your spirit. But then your flesh is at war. You know the thing that says, just take a nap all the time. Skip the gym. Actually, I came across this wonderful quote from John Piper when he talks about this. Listen to what he says. When, like the disciples, we should be watching and praying, our flesh really wants to sleep. When we should be sleeping, on the other hand, our flesh finds Facebook browsing fascinating. When we should be diligently teaching our children, our flesh would love to watch a relaxing, even family-friendly movie. When we should be meditating on Scripture, our flesh becomes a fountain of ideas for reorganizing the room, improving the yard, or critiquing the political candidate. When we should be focusing on work, our flesh brings up that focus-dominating fear or distraction. When we should be cutting our calories, our flesh demands more sugar. When we would be eating because we become unnourished, Due to believing lies about how our weight relates to our value, our flesh screams shame-filled things to stop us. And when we should be relishing the joy and freedom of sexual purity and fidelity, our flesh desires to imagine or view defiling lewd images. You see it? He goes on. It's lengthy, but can you, you can't help but notice there's just a piece of us that wants to run from the Lord all the time. And Jesus' solution to our depression, our isolation, our anxiety is to stay awake, cast off the darkness, and pray. Pray. But notice as he prays to his Father, the humility, not my will, but your will. Notice in his prayer, it's enough for him to say, God, would you do this? And God, would you do that? And God, would you provide this? However... This isn't about my will. Prayer isn't about changing the mind of God. Prayer is about changing my mind so that I can see that even in the darkness of life and even in the frustrations of living in America, in this world that is falling apart every single day with very little light to be seen, Lord, help me. My flesh is weak. The reality is that the weakness of the flesh has great power to take you wherever you don't want to go. That's what he's saying. But the Spirit of God, if you would just pray to him and say, God, mold me, shape me, and help me to see how all of these painful things I'm experiencing fit into your overall picture of life. And of course, some of us will say, how can God have such a reason for such tragedy? And just because you can't find a good reason doesn't mean there isn't one. And even in that, there's that pride, right? You don't know me, Jesus. What are you doing? All of those statements are us just saying back to God, if I was God, I would do it differently. And you would do it differently, and no one would be saved because you cannot atone for the sins of humanity. So Jesus, after praying, after speaking to his Father, knowing that he's going to experience separation from God, so you and I will never experience separation from God. He realizes what must be done. And he gets up in verse 42. And though we read, rise, let us be going, my betrayers at hand, ultimately what Jesus is declaring, I and the Father are in one accord. Jesus is settled in his mind. He's prayed before his father. He may not even in his humanity understand everything that is going to happen to him, but he is ready to march to that cross. You know what's really beautiful? We don't see it here. We, 
in Mark because Mark is so fast and it moves so quick. But if you remember, there was a time where Jesus was, again, drawn off and isolated, remember? And while he was fasting, he's tempted by Satan, and Satan takes him up to a high ridge and says, look, I'll give you power. You don't have to experience pain. I'll give you everything you need. You're hungry. I see you're hungry. I'll give you food. Jesus rejects all of that temptation. And and then in his faithfulness, because he's been faithful and he has been obedient to his father, in that particular passage, angels come and minister to him. That happens here as well. He has a divine appointment. And even though he knows he has to taste this pain, God sends him his angels to minister to him, to empower him, to equip him. Whatever it is that needed to be said or done, it is happening in that moment, and he is about to be completely faithful in his march to the cross. Verse 42, it tells us, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes, and the elders, and some of you may not realize, but that crowd, about 600 dudes, 600 soldiers come to arrest Jesus in a garden, to arrest one single man. For what? Well, clearly the Pharisees are upset. Not just because he has made the declaration that he is I am, that he is God, but also because he is ruining their money. He has overturned the tables. There are people starting to follow him. They're starting to lose their followers. Jesus must be dealt with. Jesus must be murdered. 600 of these men come around him and surround him. Other gospels tell us when someone asks, are you Jesus? And he says what? Who who remembers from John? I am. What happens to everybody there? They all fall down. Jesus declares he is Yahweh. He is God. And the response in that moment, power emits from him as such, all of these men fall down. Now, I don't know about you, but in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, there's no arresting this guy. But then he just stands silent as a lamb is ready to go before its slaughter. They arise. They arrest him. They put him through a bunch of trials that really are no trial at all. And he will go to the cross. What I want you to see out of this text is I want you to ultimately see the solution to your loneliness and your depression. Ultimately, whatever is ailing you, it is solved by being a watchful Christian. Watchful for the temptation that is after you, for the sin that wants to ruin your life and ruin your family's life. Do not be ignorant to the reality that Satan wants to destroy this church. Don't be ignorant to the reality that he is willing to do whatever it takes to obliterate the gospel message that comes from this pulpit on a week-in and a week-out basis. Be watchful to the reality, and don't be surprised one day that though we have favor with the town and we have favor with people in the community, that at some point in time that may shift or change. Don't be shocked or dismayed at the day when the police come and say, you should not gather, you will not gather, you cannot gather. These things are all coming down the pipe. Are they coming soon? I don't know. I don't care. My life should not change regardless. Preach the gospel in season, out of season. Hold Jesus on high no matter what. Let things fall where they may. Yeah, but I don't want to suffer in this life. Who cares about this life? This life is an offering back to Jesus. Then eternity is a celebration. Our time is to suffer now. We may weep now in the garden of that is this earth. We may cry out now and God hears us and God is faithful and God will indeed make all things right again. In chapter 14 alone, you can't help but seeing the the, the contrast between the faithful and the faithless. Just go back to chapter 14 verse 1. You see a faithless plot to arrest Jesus, contrasted with a faithful woman giving a priceless gift to Jesus in a jar. In 14.10, you can't help but see the faithless Judas goes to the priest to turn him over for money in contrast of the faithful disciples going to prepare the Passover meal. In verse 17, Jesus makes a prediction of the faithless one who will betray him. And then in verse 22, Jesus makes sense of the great meal of faith. And then he predicts all of their faithlessness. 
Then in verse 32, we see Jesus here as we have faithfully praying while the disciples faithlessly slumber. And in verse 42, Jesus faithfully marches to his doom, while in verse 43, Judas faithlessly gives up Jesus. What is the lesson? There is no end to man's faithlessness. But the good news is, there's no end to God's faithfulness. And may we on this Sunday look at this perfect son who cried out to his father for another way. But instead, he took the path of most resistance and he marched to his utter doom and separation from God the Father so that you and I would have the joy of community that we have in this room and the joy of love that we have between us and the Father. There is no greater love than this, than a man lays down his life for his friend. If you've called upon Christ this morning, you are called his friend and not his enemy. And he is forever for you and never against you. Amen? Would you stand with me as we pray and sing? Lord, thank you. That you accomplished what I couldn't. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for laying your life down. I'm humbled by you. And I'm desperate for you. And I pray, Lord, that more of us would come to that place of utter desperation for you to do what we can. And to turn our eyes and worship you because you are worthy of it. Thank you for you. In Jesus' name, amen.